0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.
1: From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. Today our guest is Jason Hoxima, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds organization. He's always looking to help create and preserve areas for windbirds to thrive during their long migrations, so we'll talk about them today, where they can be found, and how citizens can help with their yearly journey. As always, Dr. Major will be on hand for your pet questions. Join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email animals at mpbonline.org. And a reminder, if you ever miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. Good morning, Dr. Major. Hope you're doing well this morning. Good morning. Um, We're going to start out with a news item. Yesterday, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared the extinction of 23 animal species, including the ivory-billed woodpecker. Unconfirmed appearances in recent decades around Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Florida ignited a frenzy of ultimately fruitless searches. There have been no definitive sightings of the woodpecker since 1944, and one wildlife official said there's no objective evidence of its continued existence. This is kind of sad news, Dr. Major.
2: Well, it's kind of sad, yes, uh, but I think that's been the case uh you know really there's been a lot of searches for uh, the ivory bill it uh, requires a habitat with I suspect uh, first generation you know, old generation uh, trees for nest and really the habitat is kind of kind of not there anymore apparently there are some in I believe Cuba uh, but there's been no real sightings and no evidence in the U.S. in the time period you gave. Yeah, and as you mentioned, I
1: heard on the news as well that uh, the primary reason for the, the loss of of many species is um, is loss of habitat. And that's uh, something that we've talked about on this show before that, you know, humans and, and the other creatures on the planet trying to figure out a way to coexist. Um But I guess there are a lot of efforts uh, at at conservation and and trying to preserve habitats. So hopefully, uh, you know, all all is not lost. And these can be, when these things sorts of happen, they can be reminders to us to to make sure that we're continuing to do things to preserve habitats for wildlife.
2: Yes, it's very important. Even in our own backyards, uh, we can make efforts to have you know, plants and trees that attract and support wildlife. And uh, it's something that each one of us can do. So, um, you know, we had a little cold snap
1: or cool snap, I guess, uh, last week or so. And it got a little bit uh, more humid and hot again this week. And I think next week we've got another cool snap coming. Um, wh- what about our pets? What what do you think they think of this cool, then hot, then cool weather you think it bothers them? Well, you know,
2: not at this point. I really don't think it makes a lot of difference to them. Um, They enjoy the cool weather just like we do. Some breeds more than others. Uh, But the up and down, we're not talking about a tremendously cold snap, just cool. And uh, I think they probably do enjoy it and look forward to to it. But, uh, you know, we see some changes this time of year. Uh, some of the dogs go through <clears throat> through more shedding uh, as we get into the fall months and produce more like a winter coat. So this is all attributed usually to daylight hours. And I always have the question, somebody says, my dog sheds a lot. Well, dogs do shed, and so do cats. And good grooming, good brushing, combing, uh, will help cut down on uh, this shedding thing. But it's Somewhat seasonal, however, some of the breeds shed year-round.
3: Uh, Dr. Major, hi. Good morning. This is Java uh, here in the studio. Yeah. And uh, I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit this morning because recently me and my wife were talking about maybe introducing another pet um, into the to the family. Um, our current, our current, uh, sweet baby lady, she's, a, she's getting, she's getting a little older and, um, we were thinking about, you know, introducing another, another dog, um, in the mix just because, like I said, she's getting a little older. Um, how do you, what do you think about that? Um, should we get, a a, a new puppy or someone maybe a little further along because, She's setting her ways and, you know, having those two uh, dynamics uh, mix, like an older dog, a younger dog. I don't, you know.
2: Need to do some research and see what, uh, you know, might be available for adoption. There's a lot of dogs that are, uh, you know, on adoption row, so to speak, that um, might benefit. You really need to look at the personality uh, usually there is some uh, resistance, maybe on on the dog that's at home. Uh, what what kind of dog is?
3: Well, she yeah, we we adopted her uh, before me and my wife were together. We've almost been married for about ten years, but um, uh, she's an Australian Shepherd mix. Um, you know, we got her from the from the shelter, and of course, we right. will get another shelter dog because we enjoy that.
2: Right, I would, I would, you know. I don't know if you have had her around other dogs or not. A young dog probably could be a harassment to her by that, uh, wanting to play, wanting to be in her face, so to speak. So that can be an issue. Is she pretty mild and calm?
3: Yeah, and that's the thing. Yeah, she's pretty, she's pretty mild and calm, and I know if you introduce right. a young puppy, always energetic, right. that may be a problem.
2: Right. Do some research, maybe make a trip or two to uh, the different shelters and see what you can find. Usually a dog about her size, and I would suggest maybe uh, same sex dog probably would be would be what I would be looking for.
3: Okay, because recently, um, uh, well, not recently, but in previous years, um, we had lady who's an Australian Shepherd mix, and then a long haired Chihuahua named Roxy, and they were all they were together. But I guess maybe them being along the same age. Uh, Roxy ultimately got sick and passed away, but being along the same age allowed them to get get along, even though they were so uh, different in sizes.
2: Right, they wouldn't have to be exactly the same age, but uh, definitely look for something that you would. You know your dog pretty well, so look for something that you think would be compatible. Maybe a little bit smaller, but having a good attitude and would be something <coughs> that. <coughs> excuse me. Something that I would be looking for.
3: Okay. Thank you for that uh, advice, Dr. Major. <laughs> uh, kind of following
1: up on that for, for just a bit, and, you, you know, you said to do some research, but I guess, Dr. Major, uh, different breeds of dogs do better maybe with kids. The, you know, uh, maybe have uh, some dogs have maybe a, a higher wound-up, you know, temperament, that sort of thing. So, as you say, research to try to figure out which dog best meets uh, the requirements for your family.
2: Right, and that's a hard thing because uh, usually dogs adapt pretty well. They do better maybe than we would. But there are some dogs that uh, might have a temperament problem, and then you would have uh, chaos in the household, especially if uh, the older dog did not get along with it. Uh, Give it a trial and see, and that's always something that uh, uh, maybe requires a little extra effort on your part to be able to give attention to both the new dog and the older dog or the dog that's been there the longest because jealousy can reign, and certainly jealousy can cause some issues.
1: Uh, tr- uh, circling back to grooming for just a bit, um, and I'll mention it. I know you've talked about it. I've I had one. Uh, the Furminator, I think, is a great tool for uh, for grooming both cats and dogs. It's amazing. How uh, this uh, kind of brush comb uh, can pull out all that uh, loose fur. Um, I, oddly enough, I, my current cat did not like it, but I've not. Uh, my other cat certainly did. Uh, what? What are maybe some just general grooming tips uh, to keep the, our pets looking good and, and getting all rid of all that extra fur? Right.
2: A lot of it may have to do with cats, especially with the uh, length of the hair coat. Uh, we see some cats that were literally mat up and be a real problem to try to comb. And the cat gets very irritated when you're trying to comb those mats out. The um, little comb that has a lot of spring teeth in it does quite well, uh, as well as the Furminator. A lot of pets do not like the Furminator, but it's an excellent tool for those that do. And you'll be surprised the amount of loose hair that it gets out. So I would say they also have gloves That sometimes work, when I say a glove, it's kind of got some rough surface on it. You can actually uh, stroke or pet the animal and at the same time uh, remove a lot of the loose hair with that glove.
1: And I guess uh, because that's interesting that you brought that up because I did have one of those too, and my cat seemed to appreciate that a little bit better than the Furminator. So I guess the bottom line here is there are a number of different products out there uh just maybe experiment around find the one that your pet likes but i would think that ultimately do pets enjoy the grooming you know the the stimulation of of a comb or a or a, a hand
2: being you know drawn through their fur right i think i think most pets do now there may be some pets especially some male cats they resent having the back half of their uh torso rubbed they love to have the head rubbed and the shoulders, but then when you get far back, some of these cats get kind of upset about that. So know your animal, and uh, I do believe that petting is a, is a good thing, and I think it helps us too. Um, there have been studies that show that it may help with our blood pressure uh, to pet and uh, stroke uh, these cats and dogs. I think that's a good thing.
1: Uh, let's get a caller in before our first break. So we say good morning to Jerry in Fondren. Jerry, you're on the air with us. Go ahead.
0: Yes, uh, I have a dog that's about seven months old who chews and tries to eat any and everything—tin cans, drink water, <laughs> uh, just all all sorts of stuff. And how long does that chewing behavior act with last with a puppy? She's part lab. And part hound,
2: we think. Okay. You know, labs are notorious for having a uh, destructive tendency. They love to chew. They love to uh, literally tear up things. Not every lab does this, but a whole lot of the lab puppies. And a lot of those dogs may continue that on up until a year and a half to two years old. I know you didn't want to hear that. But uh, try to distract if you can. Remove as much of the... uh, uh, things that are available, they usually go for the best shoe or one shoe. I yeah. had one person that um, the dog went always to the left shoe, <laughs> um, so it ruined several uh, by doing that. Um, yeah, well, suggest, this
0: is it's chewed, it's chewed up shoes. It's chewed up my wife's uh, baseball hat and
2: right, and um, they, they they can pick out the belt, pick out pick out your wife's best purse as well. They they're good at that. Uh, when you're not there, uh, do you crate the dog? Do you crate her or put her in a crate? We,
0: we, got, we borrowed a crate from my sister the other day. Yeah. So I think that would be a, wise,
2: be, be a wise thing. It would reduce some tension, certainly, because uh, I'm sure you've all seen on Facebook or other places where the dogs, where they have cameras, the dogs enjoy uh, getting into something, where there's... Uh, taking the insides out of a couch cushion or whatever and um, it seems like when they come home you can look at them and they'll they know that they've done something wrong and won't even look at you when you come in but um, I think the crate is a good thing for you to use and try to cut down on the number of things that this dog um, has to chew on. by that find something whether it's a, something like a bone or some other toy that's indestructible and see if that dog won't bond with that and chew on that rather than uh, chewing on everything, any and everything. Okay.
0: I have a second question. This yes. dog is, uh, we've been keeping it inside, and we've got another dog, Pitbull, that's about uh, five, six years old. Who's, uh, and how? what's the best way to introduce two dogs to each other to where they they'll just get along. They have sniffed each other through a fence.
2: Well you know, I would say that they've been in some association with each other for a while, right? Like for Yeah. I would get someone to help you so you don't not doing this by yourself, but gradually uh introduce them slowly to each other where you've either got them on a leash or whether they're in the yard playing uh, and this sort of thing. Most dogs will get into some sort of uh, relationship between the two, and one of the dogs will probably be dominant. The puppy uh, will get in trouble sometimes by just wanting to play all the time. But uh, supervised uh, what group session I think is a, is a good way to go, but have some help when you've got them together. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Major. You're welcome. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Jerry, for your call. It's time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with our guest today, Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbird Organization. We'll talk about their upcoming field trip event and how we can tell which birds are actually windbirds, also known as shorebirds. So stay tuned. Call with questions and comments this morning. The phone number is one mpb ring It's 1-877-672-7464 or email animals at mpbonline.org. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with uh, Dr. Troy Major. Our guest for the day is Jason Hoxima, who is going to talk uh, to us about the Delta Windbirds organization. Uh, if you'd like to join the conversation with a question or a comment, you can call us at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's 1877-672-7464. And always you can send an email to animals at MPBonline.org. So good morning, Jason. If you would, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved with the Delta Windbird organization.
5: Well, good morning. Uh, Delta Windbirds was an organization that was originally founded in 2013 by a group of birders, bird watchers in northern Mississippi. And our original intent was to try to pick up some slack from a, a program that was going to be phasing out after the Gulf oil spill, where for several years there, they were using um, sales of skimmed oil to uh, generate funds to create habitat for migratory birds in the Delta and nearby regions. And when we learned how well that program had worked and when it was going away, uh, we decided to found our organization to pick up some of the slack. And so the idea was to work with private landowners uh, who have potential habitat on their property and and pay them to help offset the cost of creating really high quality habitat for migratory birds. So uh, we became aware that it was working so well because we were just exploring out in the Delta and we ran into uh, catfish farmers and other uh, landowners who were in this program. And it turns out that when you put water on the landscape, on an agricultural field, or if you draw down a catfish pond during, especially during the fall, when we often don't have a lot of water on the landscape, um, it really helps these migratory birds, shorebirds, uh, waterfowl, and other water birds coming through our region, which, which come through our region in the hundreds of thousands uh, during both fall and spring. So we were inspired by seeing this really excellent habitat and wanted to try to make a difference by helping additional landowners to do that.
1: So uh, we're going to talk about uh, shorebirds and windbirds today, but uh, I think uh, that you have an event uh, that you'd like to promote that's coming up this Saturday. Is that right?
5: Well, that's correct. Uh, so I would say that a second really important mission of Delta Windbirds is to get people outdoors to appreciate uh, all of the beautiful habitats and wildlife that we have in Mississippi, especially birds. But uh, we're all about um, everything, biodiversity, and getting people outside to just enjoy nature. And we've really been doing that for years with field trips uh, to look for birds during different seasons and different habitats. Um, But we're also really focusing, especially in recent years, uh, and going forward on a really special place uh, called Sky Lake. Which is uh, an oxbow lake in Humphreys County, out in the middle of the Delta, near uh, Belzona and Isola, just southwest of Greenwood. And it's it's a really amazing place. Uh, Sky Lake is um, it's an oxbow, so it used to be part of the Mississippi River actually until about four, thousand years ago. And now the river you know has shifted quite a bit further west. Um, but uh, the biodiversity at Sky Lake, Is really amazing, and we're trying to get people out there to see it. Um, There's quite a lot to see. Uh, Some people may be familiar with the boardwalk that's there on the north side of the lake in the swamp, where you can see bald cypress trees that are more than a thousand years old. And these are really special trees. uh, And it looks there in the swamp like like the native bottomland hardwood swamp used to look like in Mississippi all over the place. And there aren't a lot of these old growth uh, stands left. So it's a great opportunity to immerse yourself in what those beautiful old swamps used to look like. These trees are just gigantic, and it's something you have to see. Um, but we also have been focusing on Sky Lake because uh, the lake itself is really special, too, as a habitat for wildlife. So during years, especially when, when the uh, it's very dry in the fall, it, it dries down and there's Hundreds of acres of mudflats and shallow water where migratory birds stop uh, stop to feed, and uh, last year we were able to purchase 14 acres on the shore of Sky Lake on the west side, and have created what we call the Delta Windbirds Sky Lake Nature Reserve there. Uh, and that place we're still working on developing it for visitors, um, but this weekend our field trip will will start out at the boardwalk, the existing boardwalk, which is on the state managed. Uh, Sky Lake WMA uh, on the northeast side of the lake. We'll start out there at the boardwalk and have a nature walk before lunch. Uh, We'll have an optional catered lunch um, at the boardwalk site there where there's a nice picnic area. And then after lunch, we're going to take folks around the other side of the lake to our nature reserve that I just mentioned uh, and give a tour there. Uh, And then we also have some private property nearby where the landowners... um, We've been working with them for uh, since 2013 to help them create uh, migratory bird, water bird habitat there. And that's going to be the final part of our tour on Saturday is to visit their property, which is a former catfish farm that's been repurposed as a, a multi-purpose uh, recreational uh, place, a, a duck camp and a, a fishing place and a, and a, a beautiful wildlife sanctuary.
1: So uh, that that sounds great. I know I've been to the boardwalk and would highly recommend it. That's, it's a really, really uh, exciting. As you mentioned, some of those cypress trees are so huge, you just really have to see them to, to believe it. Uh, so if someone is interested in, in learning more and maybe uh, participating in the event this Saturday, where would you point them?
5: Well, uh, one option would be for them to just show up at the Sky Lake boardwalk. Um, we're going to have nature tours at the boardwalk, uh, at 9:30 a.m 10 a.m and 10:30 a.m and so you can show up at any one of those times and we'll be able to accommodate you and we'll have experts there who are really good at bird identification by sight and sound and you can walk around with us um, while we check out the big trees and see if we can find interesting birds there in the forest um, if you want to sign up online you can do that and get more information about the field trip at our website uh, so that's Www.deltawindbirds.org. Uh, it's www.deltawindbirds.org, D-E-L-T-A-W-I-N-D-B-I-R-D-S.org. And if you go there to the events page, you can find details on, on this event. And, uh, but you can, you're welcome to just show up if you like. Um, if you go to our website, you can also sign up for the lunch. Um, lunch is being catered by uh, Jerry from Jerry's Bakery and Southern Kitchen, uh, they have excellent food. They're in Belzona, and Jerry's going to be uh, creating a, a delicious lunch for us. So that's, uh, you can sign up for that on the website as well if in advance if you like to.
1: So uh, what makes Mississippi important for migratory birds? Is it just geographically we're kind of at a good stopping point for them to rest and recharge?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So many migratory birds... Uh, nest in the north, they nest in the boreal forests of Canada or even in the Arctic and the northern borders of Canada and up in Alaska. And that nesting season doesn't last very long. They, they take advantage of that short, very productive season up there. And then in the fall, they head south. Uh, some of them spend the winter in the delta of Mississippi. Some of them spend the winter on the Gulf Coast. And others of these birds are heading all the way to Mexico or even South America uh, and the southern including the southern tip of South America. And on their way, these birds need high quality habitat to stop over and feed and rest. And the water birds that we uh, are primarily focused on trying to provide habitat for are called the shorebirds or wind birds. And they're really among the champions of bird migration. Uh, they often fly hundreds or thousands of miles at a time multiple days on end before they have to stop and feed, and what they do then when they stop is they have to find shallow water and mud where they probe for insects and worms, and they try to fatten up and uh, restore their energy reserves before traveling another hundred, uh, hundreds or thousands of miles uh, on, their, on their migratory pathway. So Mississippi is located in smack dab in the middle of the, the Mississippi Flyway, which is a major corridor from birds migrating through the the center of our continent. And it's estimated that more than 500,000 of these shorebirds come through Mississippi every every spring and fall, but uh, also thousands and thousands of songbirds and other waterbirds like herons and egrets and uh, spoonbills and storks are using the wetlands out in the Delta. And part of the reason is that the Mississippi Delta has a lot of great wetland habitat. Some of it. Um, is still remaining from what it originally looked like. Some of it has been restored, uh, but also on private lands now, we can provide really great habitat on farms uh, and other working lands.
1: We're going to be visiting with uh, Jason throughout the hour. Before our next break, though, we've got a caller on the line, so we'll say good morning to Sue calling in from Beaumont. Sue, you're on the air with us. Go ahead.
4: Yes, I'd like to ask Dr. Major a question, if I could. Sure, go ahead. Yesterday, Dr. Major, I, I, uh, I, I... called Dr. Jimmy Stewart's show to ask if uh, uh, warm-blooded mammals could be reservoirs of infection of the COVID virus. He said, yes, they could. So I'm wondering if, if that's why we'll never get rid of this virus is because if your dogs, for instance, has a virus that you can keep getting reinfected from your pets, so do you think that, that, that animals should be getting a, a, a vir- virus uh, uh, like an injection, like humans do,
2: You know, that's an excellent, excellent question. And uh, there's conflicting reports, but as I understand it now, certainly uh, our dogs, uh, other mammals can test positive for the COVID-19, but there's no evidence that they can spread it back to people. And that's where I am as far as everything that I've read and studied. Uh, Most uh, mammals have their own variety of coronavirus, uh, cats have a coronavirus, but it's non-transmissible to people. Uh, dogs have a coronavirus as well. So, in in looking at that, as best I know, there is no evidence of transmission from uh, the mammals, i.e., our pets, uh, to humans. So that's uh, unless there's been new information that has been put out. I don't think you can get. Uh, The COVID-19 from your pets.
1: All right, Sue, thanks for that call. It is time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Jason Hoeksema, about the work of the Delta Windbirds organization, and if there's an opportunity for you to lend a helping hand. If you've had a brush with a shorebird that we'd love to hear from you, also if you have any pet questions for Dr. Major, don't hesitate to join the conversation. Call with questions and comments at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-MPB. 672-7464 672 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today our guest for the hour is Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds organization. If you want to join our conversation this morning, you can give us a phone call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Now, Kevin,
3: i got to jump in here real quick because I see we have Bill from Greenwood on the phone. And yesterday when we heard the news about the Ivory Bill woodpecker being uh, declared extinct uh, from the U.S. uh, wildlife and fishery service. The first person I thought about was Bill from Greenwood because I knew he called in, I don't, you know how some time ago and talked about maybe spotting one and it was, you know, a part of a, a thing. So I'm, I'm glad Bill was able to talk in and maybe, uh, Jason can, uh, give us a little bit of insight about that, uh, this morning too.
1: Uh, so Bill, you're on the air with us. Go ahead.
6: Oh yeah. I got a couple of things to add about the, uh, when Dr. Major was talking about the, the ivory bill in uh, Cuba, but uh, loss of habitat there, they haven't been seen since the 80s. And so they're probably extinct there because people, they got a special place set aside, but people keep going in there and cutting down trees and burning the forest. So there's only another place, and that is in Mexico, where there's a bird that looks almost exactly like it. Uh, it's an ivory-billed-type woodpecker, but there people kill it for some reason, so it's practically extinct, too, so it looks like it just doesn't have a chance anywhere. But uh, uh, I was wondering, uh, in the Mississippi uh, Delta National Forest, has anybody ever seen one in the Delta National Forest, or is it uh, 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 back in the old days, you know?
5: Well, that's a good question, Bill. Um, definitely, ivory-billed woodpecker did have established populations in Mississippi. Um, when, when we still had extensive tracts of old-growth forests, uh, ivory-bills were thriving in Mississippi. Uh, there are reports from John James Audubon visiting and seeing them and, and collecting them in Mississippi and uh, there are specimens in museums from that were collected in Mississippi originally. So, uh, yeah, and as you as you pointed out, the the key factor was habitat loss, and this is true for many many bird species that are uh, that are threatened. Um, Ivory-billed woodpecker was really dependent on bot- old growth bottomland hardwood species um, of trees and and extensive tracts of that old growth. But, you know, all bird species need the correct habitat to live in, and uh, especially those that specialize in certain habitats really are hurt when, when we destroy that habitat. Um, Ivory-billed woodpecker, uh, I know there are specimens that, we, that are on record from uh, Sunflower County, uh, Harrison County, Bolivar County, uh, Warren County, Jackson County, Hancock County. I was just looking, glancing at some of the records we have on file. Uh, Gene Knight, my friend here in Oxford, has been going back and trying to compile all those records with the help of Nick Winstead from the uh, museum in, in uh, Jackson, and uh, they've they've documented where all the specimens are in museums that were collected in Mississippi. And those are those are the ones that I have record of. All
6: right, Bill. Yeah, back in. The- Go ahead. Back in the 1930s, President Roosevelt was going to set aside and buy the area in the 30s, uh, what the the, the, the building was, but the uh, the lumber company would not sell it to him, and so they just went ahead and cut it all down here in the Delta. So uh, that's a shame that had to happen, but uh, thank you all. I appreciate it.
1: Good to hear from you, Bill. And again, Jason, as I mentioned, the Top Show, and you just referenced too. You know that's why really uh, groups like yours and the work that you do is so important because hab- habitat loss is is the number one cause for declining populations of of these creatures.
5: That's right. And one of the things we're excited about is that uh, on one hand, it is really important to preserve and uh, protect the existing habitat we have left. And that's something we're trying to do at Sky Lake, is to help preserve the remaining bottomland hardwood forest that's there. Uh, but also what you know, we've really come to learn in recent, uh, recent years is that there's a lot of potential for making great habitat on working land. So uh, you know, farming is really important in Mississippi. It's really important in the world for supplying food uh, and other products. And um, when we can also make wildlife habitat in the context of those working farms, uh, then we can really have a win-win for people and wildlife. And we're, Delta Windbirds is doing that. We have a project right now um, on four farms in Sunflower County uh, where we're working with the farmers to create habitat in the fall after they've harvested their crops uh, by pumping water out onto these uh, fields. And this is water that they've preserved, that they've uh, captured in a tailwater recovery system. So we're not pumping groundwater. Uh, we're using leftover surface water and pumping it back out onto these fields in the fall. And we're finding that the migratory shorebirds flock to it like crazy. Immediately, uh, one of our partner farmers pumped his field uh, covered with water uh, last week, Tuesday evening. And one of my students, uh, Emma Counts, was there on Wednesday around noon and saw several different species of migratory shorebirds had already found it and were already feeding there. And we went there on Friday and counted uh, hundreds and hundreds of shorebirds uh, that were already using that habitat. So there's great potential for creating this kind of habitat on, on farms, for example, in the Mississippi Delta.
1: This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got another phone call on the line, so let's say good morning to Johanna. You're on the air with us. Go ahead.
4: Hey, I wanted to ask your guest a um, question. My, in Waynesboro, Mississippi, my mother had an area close to her where she grew up, and she said that the birds would come there, and it would be full of birds. It was like an ephemeral wetland, and it was full of frogs. It said then it would dry up some. Okay, it's gone back to, I mean, there's loblolly pines, you still scrub things and stuff like that. How do you restore or bring something like that back to what it was? Is there? So I talked to somebody, and they said to the bush hog it, and I thought that sounded a little rough. I don't know. Uh, well, is there a way to question.
5: do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I would suggest is contacting the uh, the USDA's NRCS office, uh, National Natural Resource Conservation Service, and they have programs. They have experts who can come take a look at your property and provide consultation on how to go about that restoration. Um, you can also contact NRCS, yeah. Okay. Um, there's There are local offices in um, many places in Mississippi. You can also contact uh, Delta Wildlife, um, and, you know, both of those organizations, if they can't help you, uh, they can put you in touch with someone who, who can.
4: Okay, well, thank and you. There, it's the absolutely, is-
5: absolutely possible. With, with wetlands um, especially, uh, you know, it, it's often a matter of, you know, getting rid of um, any vegetation that would that would get in the way of of that of natural wetland processes there. But it's often a matter of just restoring natural hydrology to those areas and allowing water flow that would normally happen. Um, if there's pines in there, yeah. uh, then cutting them or burning them out or cutting them out might be necessary. Uh, but it depends yeah. on the type of wetland. Some some wetlands uh, include pines, uh, so you're going to want to consult with an expert who really can come take a look and. And see that She's so.
4: 99 years old, and she said when, when she was a kid, said there were no trees there. It was just an open place and said that said mm. it would collect water. And then uh, then they kind of, elect, and the lot lolly pines were introduced, and they started filtering over in it. I don't think there's any great big pines in it, but it's just, but she said it, it just collected water, and I don't know why it collected water, but it does. Okay, well, then thank you so very much, and I'll get in contact with these people and see if they can tell me or help me how you would go about it.
1: All right, uh, Johanna, thanks for your, thanks for your call. Uh, this is Creature Comforts. So let's take our last break of the hour. We've been talking with our guest, Jason Hoxima. He is the president of the Delta Windbirds Organization, and we'll be back to wrap up things after this final break.
3: Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.
1: This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and our guest for the hour, Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi, president of the Delta Windbirds organization. Uh, Jason, can we use the term windbirds and shorebirds interchangeably?
5: Yes. Uh, Windbird is a, a term of endearment that was it was coined by uh, Peter Matheson, the naturalist, who wrote a, a whole book about these birds. Um, this group of birds uh, and that word shorebirds, it, it often gets used more broadly to refer to, you know, people think of it as any birds that kind of live near the water, but really when we say that we're referring to smaller birds that have uh, curved short bills or straight short bills or long bills that, that probe the mud and shallow water for their food. These are species like killdeer or killdee, uh, woodcocks belong to that group, snipe, uh, sandpipers, plovers, uh, black-necked stilts, uh, American avocet, and all of their relatives. So Technically, when we say shorebird or windbird, that's what we're referring to. Um, I love uh, also the, what I call the wading birds—the herons, egrets, storks, spoonbills—but um, I don't, I don't think of those as shorebirds per se. When we, when birders say shorebird, they mean sandpipers, plovers, killdeer, uh, etc. And windbird is kind of a—you know—you you don't hear that term a lot, but it, uh, people who love these birds will sometimes call them windbirds.
1: We have another caller on the line, and it's William who calls in from Starkville. Good morning, William. You're on the air with us.
2: Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, since you're talking extensively about the, uh, uh, the uh, forests in the Delta, uh, a professional forester, Frank Trotsky, that was a friend of mine and worked at the university and had a business in Columbus, Mississippi, told a story about discovering a pair of uh, a giant cypress trees Siamese Cypress trees one tree had grown in and was being fully supported by the second tree and the, and the base of the first tree had been completely burned burned off and burned free and both trees were alive because of the uh, because they had grown together and I just wondered uh, I've, I've wondered for, for decades whether there's anybody that knows where those trees were or if they still stand uh, Somewhere in the Delta, that's all I know, in the, uh, the southern parts of the uh, Mississippi Delta. I just thought I'd leave that question out in case somebody comes across it. I hope I'm listening if they do <laughs> report it.
1: Uh, all right. Uh, Jason, do you know anything about that?
5: I've never heard of that. Um, that phenomenon makes sense to me. I, I believe that, that that happens, and I would love to see those trees, but I've never heard of them. Uh, I'm going to ask some friends. And if anyone's listening who knows where those are, uh, please either call in or send send us an email and, and let me know. I'd love to see them also.
1: Um, so you t- uh, mentioned a couple of the of the wind shorebirds, and uh, maybe we can spend the last few minutes of the show here t- describing a few of them. And the one I'd like to see on this list. Uh, is the snipe because, you know, back in high school the big joke was you're going to take someone snipe hunting and it was, you know, sort of a trick because supposedly there was nothing called a snipe, but there actually is a bird called the snipe, is that right?
5: There is, indeed. Um, It used to be called common snipe, but um, they split that species because that's what the European one is called, which is now considered a different species. We have one here in uh, North America called the Wilson's snipe. And it's, a, it's quite a common bird. And they migrate into Mississippi from the north. They come in in the fall, especially in the later parts of the fall migration. And they spend the winter uh, out in muddy fields in the delta. So if you drive around uh, looking for birds out in agricultural areas in the winter in, in Mississippi, um, you're liable to come across uh, a field with, with snipe. And they're fascinating little birds. They're very well camouflaged. They're really stripy. Uh, they have what we call snipe stripes on their backs, and they have big, long bills. They're chunky, fat little birds, and they they like to hide in between the rows in a in an ag field. And yet, it's hard to see them until you spook them up, and then they they zip away and kind of zigzag through the air, going rawr, 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 and kind of kind of screeching. And it's it's always fun to cause them to pop up. And we actually uh, spooked up three of them out of our farmer's field. Uh, in Indianola just last uh, Friday when we were doing our bird survey.
1: That's ironic because, again, you know, the old thing about snipe hunting was it was a joke and you take someone out that doesn't know and haha, we all laugh or whatever. But that's interesting to note that if there actually were a snipe hunt, that's kind of hard to find out because they hide so well.
5: <laughs> well, that's true. Um, there is snipe hunting uh, actually allowed in uh, in Mississippi. There's a season for them, and so people do go snipe hunting. It starts in November and goes through February, February. Uh, so, you know, the snipe hunt is a real thing. Uh, whether you're using a gun or binoculars, you, you can go find them. Uh, we like to to, um, to find them in our habitat out in the Delta. And uh, it's fun to tell people about them because, like like you, a lot of people have that impression that they're this kind of mythical bird. But they're they're real and they're out there.
1: Uh, do you have a favorite windbird?
5: I do. Um, my favorite windbirds are the godwits um in fact i'll just for your listeners i'll tell people that you know after you get off this listen to this radio show google the bar-tailed godwit and see if you can find a video of the about the bar-tailed godwit flight record there was a a bar-tailed these bar-tailed godwits nest in alaska and they winter in new zealand mm. and it's amazing to think about how they get in between there because what's been discovered just in recent years is that they fly it nonstop. uh it's like 7,500 miles from Alaska to New Zealand. And it takes them eight, nine, 10, 11 days of nonstop flight during which they can't eat. They can't drink water. So they consume their own fat and muscle mass in order to have enough energy for this amazing journey. Some people think that they might sleep half of their brain at a time while they're doing it. And then they land in New Zealand and they can't eat for weeks because their stomach is all shrunken down and uh, they can rest, but they can't eat. So it's just an incredible phenomenon. And they've been putting um, GPS trackers on these birds for the last few years, and you can you can watch their migratory pathways online um, and and follow their their amazing feats. So I love the godwits because they're just incredible migratory uh, uh, champions. And there's a godwit species that is fairly common on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi in the winter. The 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 uh, marbled godwit, which you can see at Jones Park in, in Harrison County there in the winter. Uh, and and uh, once in a while we get a Hudsonian godwit that flies through Mississippi, which is another record-setting flyer. They, they launch from the east coast and fly all the way to Brazil during the fall migration. So I'm really impressed with the godwits, but the smaller shorebirds are, are uh, almost as impressive as well. They, a lot of them have thousand-mile flights that they do nonstop.
1: Is there anything we can learn about aviation or, you know, flying around in in our planes and things from the way the birds do these amazing journeys?
5: Well, maybe so. A lot of them have sort of surprising pathways that they take through the air. You know, if you look at where these birds are actually flying, it's not not always directly point to point. And that's because they've evolved and learned to use uh, dominant, you know, air streams, uh, wind patterns, and to avoid... Uh, certain you know, places that have uh, troubling or difficult uh, weather for them to encounter. Um, they also travel at certain times and places to try to avoid predators. Um, and their navigation skills are really amazing, and, and people are studying how they, how they navigate and trying to learn from that. Uh, they, use, they use the sun. They use the stars. They use landscape markers. Some of them use magnetism uh, and the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, it's really kind of a, a multi-instrument approach that they use. So there's a lot to learn from uh, studying how they navigate on these journeys.
1: We're going to wrap things up. Just a final reminder, there is an event coming up with the Delta Windbirds. It's this Saturday. You can show up at the Boardwalk at Sky Lake, Or if you need some more information, you can go to their website. It's deltawindbirds.org. Creature Comforts is a production of the Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. Our call screener today was Lisa Lancaster. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guest Jason Hoxima, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.